Hey entrepreneurs and website owners, if you're ready to take your online presence to the next level, you need a reliable web host. And that's where HostGator comes in. HostGator is your one-stop solution for easy, affordable, and powerful web hosting. Whether you're launching a blog, an online store, or anything in between, HostGator's got you covered. Don't miss out on creating the website you've always wanted. Visit foxcitiesmm.com slash HostGator today and let your journey begin. You're listening to Fox City's Murder and Mayhem, your bi-weekly dose of true crime history in a small rural community of Wisconsin. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Fox City's Murder and Mayhem. I'm Eric. I'm Gavin. I'm Gavin. After our long break, we're back again. Nobody knows that we were on a long break, but we no. were. Yeah. So what do you got for us today? A trip to Kukana? No, actually, uh, I think we're in Green Bay. We're in Green Bay. I, I was thinking, I was like, is there even a Kakana connection? I don't think so. I don't think I have any Kakana connection in this one. And yeah, just a warning. I warned Eric this off air. This is the last one I have ready. Like I have some that are partially ready, so who knows? But this, there there might be some repeat pairings for a while, uh, depending on how ambitious I'm feeling. <laughs> But uh, yeah, today I call this episode The Golden Pheasant Mutilations. Wow. This should be this should be a good one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm gonna assume. Yes. We are in Green Bay. Um, we are in nineteen thirty in Green Bay. I don't know how many people know this story. Like it was completely new to me. I had never heard this story. And this is the this is also pulled from that book by the cop in Green Bay. Correct. Okay. Yep. This is uh, this comes from a true crime in Titletown, USA, by Tracy Ertle and Mike Knetzker. I uh, I basically ripped them off. I took I took the cases <laughs> out of their book and I made like, I mean, obviously there there's going to a lot more detail. I made the, the short version of them. So if you're interested in these, definitely check that book out. In this one, I, I put this at the end of this episode, but I'll throw it in right now. I I did take issue with their book on this case because they threw in some conversations between one of the victims and her killer. And I don't like when that happens in books. Other people, maybe other people don't care. Maybe that's like a thing people enjoy. I don't because this didn't happen. We don't know who the killer was, not to give away the episode, but we don't know who the killer was. So, like, throwing in these, like, made-up conversations about what could have happened between her and the killer, I guess it's fun to think about. We don't know that. Weird. So, and they only did it in this story, like, they didn't do it in the other ones? I don't remember them doing it. Like, it wasn't as noticeable if they did. And this is a common thing. Like, you don't see it as much anymore, but books used to do this. And you see this a lot in, like, old mafia books where they'll have characters having conversations. And none of these conversations happened, but they're like, oh, a secret meeting happened. Let's have these two guys talk. talk. And, you know, maybe that's what happened. Probably not. And that bothers me to throw stuff like that into what's otherwise, like, historically accurate. Because, yeah, because I, I, I think that that confuses some people. Yeah, it doesn't. So 
I can just chime in on this because I actually listen to a couple of podcasts that do the same thing, uh-huh. and I actually don't mind it at all. Okay. They're very, very clear, though, at the beginning of every episode, they do clearly state, like, we don't know what happened with these conversations. Our conversations are made up, but they're based on the factual evidence that's, yeah. you know, put there. But yeah, I don't, that doesn't really bother me, and I do think it adds an element to the podcast. Yeah. Like I said, I, pe- people might like that, and I do think it, it can make for a better story. I just don't personally care for it because it then, in some cases, it will lead the reader or listener to making assumptions, making that- assumptions, or thinking like, "Oh, well, maybe this is what happened." When like you don't know, that's that's just me. So this, so the, so I remove all that when I see fake conversations. I do not keep any of that stuff. And, and and I can see why that bothers you because you're very much about what the evidence shows yeah. me, not not trying to add any speculation into it whatsoever. Just what the evidence shows. Yeah, and, there's, and, and this this is rare, but I've seen it where a book, a historical book, a true crime book, whatever will reference previous books as though it was real. And I don't know how this happens. Like if the writer is like dumb or something, but they'll be like, oh, this conversation. I'm like, no, you just cited a fake conversation. Like, how do you not know? But whatever. Okay. That's all beside the point because I removed it. It's not in here. (laughs) Not in here. All right. Peter Van Vagel was twice the sheriff of Brown County, which is, people who don't know, is Green Bay. Twice the sheriff? Does that mean like... He was elected twice. Okay, so two terms. With okay. with wife Antoinette, they had several children, including John Peter Van Vagel, known as Jack Van Vagel, uh, who was born in October 1893. Jack's early life seemed to be going all right. Uh, he was married. He had a child. But then in 1916, when he was 22 years old, his wife and child died of influenza of the flu. That sent him into a a world of sadness where he no longer wanted to be involved with people. He said, I'm my wife and child are dead. I don't want any more wives and children. I'm done. Mm -hmm. So this was an early tragedy in his life. He instead threw himself into establishing businesses uh, he helped his younger brother, Walter, establish a quote-unquote soft drink parlor um, at 1215 Main Street in Green Bay. If I'm not being clear about that, soft drink parlor uh, typically means a bar, but we call it soft drink parlor because during Prohibition times, you can't call it a bar. Jack opened his own place called Van Saloon at the northeast corner of George and Main. I'm not super familiar with Green Bay. People know where George and Maine is, then they'll know. Jack later left Van Saloon and moved to the edge of town, two miles east of Green Bay on Highway 78, which is not Highway 78 anymore. Now it's 57, but it was okay. 78 at the time. It was the gold, he opened the Golden Pheasant Inn, which is a roadhouse known for its hamburgers, chicken dinners, and slot machines. Oh man, so the Golden Pheasant is just the name of a bar? Yeah, uh, I thought this was going to be a really interesting story based off that, but now it's just the oh, name of a clever, cleverly named bar. <laughs> disappointed, disappointed. Uh, although 
his place was in the same neighborhood as well-known brothels, including Happy Hansons and Ma <laughs> Piers. It was not itself one of those places. It may have been too well-known for its slot machines, because the machines were targeted by burglars more than once. After a long time of being a widower, Jack met young Lucille, who became his girlfriend and waitress. Lucille had previously been married to a man named Frank when she was 16 years old, and they had a daughter, Betty Jane. Frank was a machinist and found he could triple his salary by moving over state lines into Illinois. For whatever reason, Lucille couldn't accept the idea of moving to Illinois, so the couple separated, and she could stay in Wisconsin. They were not close friends after the split, but Frank never stopped loving Lucille and would do anything for her or their daughter. When Lucille moved in with Jack in Green Bay, her daughter Betty Jane went to live with Lucille's parents. Is this all clear so far? Yep. Okay. On the night of May 18, 1930, Jack Van Vagel, now 36, and his girlfriend Lucille, age 24, were killed in their sleep at the Golden Pheasant Rose <laughs> Roadhouse. Jack was attacked first. The wounds suggested the weapons used were a corn sickle, an axe, and an axe handle. Wow. His face was pulverized mashed right into his skull and slashed many times in a haphazard way. Lucille met the same fate, but apparently woke up because her arms showed extensive defense wounds. The walls were splashed with blood, much of it probably Lucille's, because she had woken up and was moving around more. The next day, a number of people came by. Some of them were customers, some of them were delivery men, um, and they found it odd that the building was locked. Not that it would be unusual for them to be closed. Jack's car was parked outside. He seemed to be in. It wasn't quite mysterious enough to alert the police. They thought, well, maybe he just wants a day off. Everybody can have a day off. <laughs> Another day passed, and a neighbor, Mrs. William Debreu, or Debreu, became concerned. She sent her nine-year-old son, Martin, over to peep in the windows. <laughs> you know, like you do. Martin wasn't sure exactly what he saw, but he knew it wasn't good. <laughs> Blood was splashed on the bedroom's white walls, and someone had obviously been injured very badly. Quote, we were all shocked. Jack never had any enemies, said his friend Eddie Bodart, a former city alderman. Green Bay detective Otto Kronz said, It was messy, all right. Killing two people like that. There had to be a cause. There was speculation that it was a robbery gone wrong, especially because two slot machines were found smashed open. The cash register had a $20 bill inside, but the coins were missing. The violence suggested a more personal connection. Police said it was possible the killer knew Lucille and wanted her to see Jack die before she was killed. And anybody who reads, listens, watches true crime... This is a pretty common thing you hear that, like, when the violence is, like, really bad, mm -hmm. like, it's there's a lot of times there's, like, an emotional, personal element to it. Yeah, I could, I could totally imagine that. Yeah, so that's that's kind of the implication here is, like, if it was just a robbery, they, they, went they, to they might get shot and that'd be about it. 
Um, you're not going to like beat them to the point that you don't recognize their face anymore. That, which is not, it's just not proof, but it does kind of suggest that there was a real personal anger there. Checking the building, a basement door to the outside was found unlocked. While ground floor, while the ground floor entrance was blocked from the outside by a piece of wood. According to Jack's nephew, the police did not secure the scene very fast, and people flooded into the restaurant to steal souvenirs. <laughs> you know, like you do. So, so they, basically, they heard that the, there was a killing here, so they all went there and tried to steal everything, Yeah, basically? Yeah. <laughs> okay. You know how it is. You know how it is when... I can't really relate. I... I if when somebody's somebody tells, murdered, you're running, you start <laughs> grabbing stuff. stuff yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe people do that. I personally do not do that. I tend to stay away from those places. I think they do a better job now of kind of blocking <laughs> okay, things yes. like that. But um, <laughs> uh, two doctors conducted the autopsies. They said so deep were the wounds that they resembled the tearing discharge of a load of buckshot, which it wasn't. I mean, mm-hmm. this was was an axe and, like, an axe yeah. handle and just... Yeah, but, I mean, they were beat so bad, it looked like they got blown by a shotgun. I mean, so it was, it was God, pretty is, serious. It sounds just terrible. Yeah. Who's the prime suspect here? Lucille's ex-husband, Frank. So he's brought up from Milwaukee. With no clear leads, um, they thought they'd uh, look into him. You know, of course, there's the motive of jealousy. But he couldn't be connected to the crime, and actually his alibi was solid. Furthermore, the restaurant's other waitress, a woman named Irene, had never even seen Frank before, so it wasn't like he had ever like staked the place Place out or anything. Uh, Van Vagel's funeral was held at St. Willibrord's Catholic Church and was well attended with many family friends and curious locals. Months later, accused crooks Bernard Coy and W.G. Foss were in a cell together in Sturgeon Bay up in Door County. Coy told Foss that a man named Thomas Donnelly had been Lucille's boyfriend and killed her out of jealousy. Coy said Donnelly used a hatchet, but immediately regretted killing his quote-unquote angel. Coy had met Donnelly in a jail cell where Donnelly frequently had nightmares and would call out Lucille's name. <laughs> By an incredible coincidence, Foss, this Donnelly tells the story to Coy, Coy tells the story to Foss. Foss is transferred to Sheboygan's jail, and he's put in a cell next to Thomas Donnelly. <laughs> Weird. Although Donnelly was there booked under another name, the name Jim McGilth. They were in jail together for two weeks, and Donnelly then apparently told Foss that he was wanted for a murder in Green Bay. Later, when Foss told authorities, Donnelly denied it, like you do, Mm -hmm. and Coy denied ever even telling Foss this story in the first place. The sheriff questioned Donnelly and believed that he could be the killer, but the solid evidence was lacking. Nobody could actually place Donnelly at the Golden Pheasant. Uh, how much any of that is true, I don't oh, know, because yeah. everybody denied it as soon as they were called out on it. And I'm sure that this murder is going to go unsolved, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Despite being the site of a grisly double murder, 
the building continued to be a restaurant. For a while, it was Don Quixote's Supper Club. Then it was purchased by Peter Lee in 1974, who turned it into a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> For years, Peter Lee saw and heard strange things, glasses breaking and a woman talking on a telephone that wasn't there. They requested David Ray of Nina to come in and conduct a seance in 1990. David Ray, the psychic, saw Lucille crying out for the killer to stop. Using automatic writing, he asked people present. They got This was sort of publicly done where people could come in and watch him work. He asked those present to ask questions. Through the automatic writing, he was told that the weapon was a corn knife and the killer was an itinerant farm laborer that Lucille knew. The writing said the killer died in 1942 in a car accident outside of Chicago. A woman in the room had a vision of a man with a dark beard and a big nose. Ray was deeply bothered by what he saw and soon stopped conducting seances altogether. He told the press, I never wanted to do that again. <laughs> and for people who don't know like what automatic writing is, it's, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's like you hold a pen over a piece of paper and you kind of let, you know, whatever move your hand around, similar to like a Ouija board type thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure I've said this before. I'll be completely honest. Like, I think a lot of this sounds like nonsense. Yes. Um, But that's that's what happened. Uh, And really, the only thing here that's like accurate was that the weapon was a corn knife. They already knew that. Yeah. Like, it was already reported that a corn sickle was, like, the weapon. So, it wasn't like he had uncovered anything. So, I'm a little suspicious. But whatever. Fun times. <laughs> I think a seance here. By the 2000s, the building was actually torn down. Um, and today, the site is a strip mall at the northeast corner of University and Dan's. It's across the street from Walgreens. Lucille's husband, Frank, passed away in Milwaukee in 1969. Their daughter, Betty Jane, grew up, got married, and she passed away in 2004. Not not solved. Not solved. Not really. I mean, brutal, brutal murder, but really not much to it other than that, that that it was just... No, not a lot of weird twists and turns like some of our stories. Definitely, like, really serious this isn't just, it, it could have been a robbery gone wrong, a burglar gone wrong, whatever. Um, but it seems like something more. More, yeah. yeah. And and it's just so weird that they couldn't make any real connections, really, from the sounds of it, yeah. to who could have done it. It's like, that kind of anger, you think somebody would know about it. Yeah. And that's, is, and that's the, I'll, I'll speak to that a little bit. That's what I was talking about in the beginning, where they have, like, they threw in these conversations. Mm-hmm. In the fake conversations, they talk about a customer who would come in and would order food and whatever, and he would flirt with Lucille, and apparently his flirting grew over time, and she had to kind of like be like, hey, I'm dating the owner. Like, You can flirt a little, but, you know, chill. chill. Mm-hmm. But I don't. I don't know where they got that from. Like, there's nothing. Like, that was not in the police, like, suspecting anybody. Which is why I don't... I don't really care for that 
fake conversation. Like you couldn't find it's it. A, it's a theory that somebody came in and grew an obsession with Lucille and things went horribly wrong. And it's certainly possible. Like I could see that. It's just a complete but speculation c- on the part of the authors. Like there's there wasn't a guy that anybody suspected. So And and I almost wonder if if there is no evidence that that's what happened. I almost wonder if they just wrote that in there because without it it probably wasn't as good of a story because there's yeah. really no you know you couldn't really even talk about very much investigation because it sounds like there was just no leads whatsoever on who could have done this no and no it seems like they the police were really felt that the target was Lucille and Jack just happened to be they had to get rid of Jack if Lucille was the target and it wasn't her husband, it clearly makes sense that it's like a jealous boyfriend or somebody who wanted to be, be a, boyfriend. a boyfriend. or, yeah. I get where the authors are coming from. Like, that's certainly a reasonable speculation. They didn't get that from anywhere. Yeah. yeah at least as far as you could find. As far as they, I know, go, right. Yeah. Um, my understanding, I could be very wrong, but my understanding is this police file is destroyed. It does not exist. So there could have been something in there at some point in time. Well, it, could, it could have been, but I. But by the time they wrote the book, the book it was the, gone. gone. It was yeah. probably already gone. So yeah, interesting. Well, another sad unsolved murder. Yeah, yep. we, 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 you need to find one that's actually solved. So that you want a solved murder? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. So. I think. I mean, the next one that I want to do is the train derailment. That's, well, that's, that's solved. In, in where? In Wyoming. The old, the, not the yeah. kind of recent one? Yeah, the kind of recent one. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. That'll be cool. Yeah. I, I wanted to do that story. Spoiler for everybody. But G- we don't... Generally, we have, well, at least I have, you know, like the 50-year rule. That one, I don't care about the 50-year rule because it isn't like I'm going to say anything bad about anybody. Mm-hmm. And I don't even, I could be wrong, but I don't believe anybody died. I just think it's a great interesting story that you and I, this happened like when we were in high school. Yeah, I remember it, so. But for anybody who's like younger than us, they probably don't know about it. Yeah, so it's a very good story. Yeah. Cool. Well, we'll look forward to that one because that should be interesting. And it'll be cool to do something that I actually specifically remember as well, too, so. Because most of these stories I don't know anything about. Yeah, it was a big deal. And actually, at the time it happened, I didn't even know where Wyoming was. <laughs> um, and now I know that it's really not very far. far. No, not at all. Cool. All right. Well, we can't promise that one will be next week or yeah. in two weeks, probably within the next It month. will most likely be the next story, but there might be, be a, rerun a rerun in between. In between. So for to allow Gavin to get a hold of it. So Yeah. All right. Well, cool. Then we can wrap this episode up unless you got anything else you want to add in, Gavin? No, not really. Uh, I guess as far as this story goes, if anybody has any information, obviously I don't think we're going to solve it. But if you're like, you know, a family member and you have some other piece of information, if you want to reach out, I mean, I'm interested. Yeah. Send send an email to MilwaukeeMafia at gmail.com. And, you know, maybe, maybe there's been a family story that's been passed down. And and we always like a do nice a, angle to throw in there. Yeah, we always like doing follow ups to podcasts. I know we haven't really done a follow up yet, but if stuff does arise, we will definitely 
put it out there for people to hear. So Yeah. All right. Well, with that, we'll wrap this one up. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'll be back in two weeks. Can't promise it'll be a new episode. Might be a rerun, but it could be a new episode. We really Maybe. don't know. Maybe. So keep you in suspense. Yeah. Thanks again, everybody. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Fox City's Murder and Mayhem. Join us in two weeks for another exciting episode of Murder and Mayhem. <laughs>